welcome to Originality, the podcast where we explore the roots of creativity and creative genius. I am one of your hosts, Aline Sims, and I am joined, as always, by the super fantabulous Kay Tempest Bradford. I stopped my adjectives for a while, but I feel like we're just missing some pizzazz if I don't have an amazing adjective for you every t- every every episode. I think it's time to begin to consult the th- the thesaurus. I do. I, yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> sure I've used super fantabulous in the past, and it won't do to repeat. We've got to got to keep our game strong, or I've got to keep my game strong anyway. <laughs> How are you doing, Tempest? Oh my gosh, I'm doing so great, but. Also, it's like I'm alone in a house for the first time in a really long time. It's a little weird to be all by myself somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, I I wondered how that would do because typically you are, you know, you stay with friends, background for for people who are listening. Tempest is a vagabond. Is that a good word to use? (laughs) Yeah. Goes from place to place to place uh, and stays often with friends. And so right now she's uh, a writer in residence somewhere and got a house to herself. And, um, you know, maybe we'll discuss that later. But uh, I wondered when when it was like, I'm all alone here. I was like, How, is that going to be good or is that going to be overwhelming? Because it can be overwhelming to be alone. That's true. But I think for me, for right now, I'm really, really excited to be all by myself because I'm like, I can do what I want. I can sing as loud as I like. I can dance around. I can turn up the heat to really high degrees and nobody can complain. It's great. <laughs> it's very important if you're a creative person to be able to set the, the heat to what you want. Thermostat. So you're not distracted by goosebumps? No, we can't be distracted by <laughs> goosebumps. That would be terrible. Would be terrible. Well, so today, um, one of the things that we are going to talk about, or the thing we're going to talk about, is uh, the role of going outside your discipline um, for like creative purposes and for the purposes of having ideas. So uh, when we were talking about this in Slack, Tempest was like, you know, as a science fiction fantasy writer, I should be reading things outside of science fiction and fantasy. Uh, if uh, I'm a musician, I should be looking at art and reading books and, and, you know, watching movies and going for walks in nature and that kind of thing because uh, of the interconnectivity of creativeness and also the way that kind of getting outside of your normal zone can spark things that you didn't know were there. Is that a good synopsis? Yeah, that is. So do you have an idea where we should start? Well, um, I wanted to ask you, since you are, your creativity is often in the realm of the technical, um, whether or not you've seen any examples of this kind of like, you know, going into other disciplines, interdisciplinary work in tech where it's been like, yes, that project totally benefited from like bringing in those performance artists to do that uh, tone poem um, <laughs> or whatever, um, or any times where you have like been involved or, or seen some uh, a project where it definitely could have benefited from some thinking that was outside of what everybody sort of knew on the team. <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Um, 
yeah, I think this is a big, um, a big reason why diverse teams are important, not just in tech, but because I work in the tech industry, I'm going to, I'm going to call us out. We don't have diversity in tech the way we need to. Um, everybody, um, not literally, I'm, I don't mean literally everybody, but the majority of people have, you know, very similar backgrounds. And so we get very similar thinking across teams. Um, what happens when when you bring in a person who has a different perspective is that it sparks different kinds of ideas. Because if you all think the same, you're going to come up with the same ideas. If you have different backgrounds or different, you know, paradigms, then, you know, different people are going to look at a problem in different ways. It's just like if you have, I don't know, you, you watch a movie, like a science fiction movie and like the aliens are invading. Um, like think about Arrival. This might have like very light spoilers, but you think about Arrival and it's like, okay, so so we have aliens and, and so we need the military, obviously, because, you know, these creatures and ships that travel the, the galaxy are unable to defend themselves against our projectile weapons or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, so obviously the military is there and we need the scientists there to, to, um, I don't know, what is the ship made out of? And we need, um, some kind of analyst to decide um, why they chose the spots to land that they chose, but how are we going to communicate with them? Right. What, what do we need to figure that out? We need we need a linguist. Right. Um, and then we need maybe a mathematician to also help with that, because sometimes language has, you know, patterns that math can can suss out, you know. And so in Arrival, I don't know why this example is coming from Arrival, but like, you know, these alien invasion movies, you see like these diverse teams solving a problem. And often the solution is not from, you know, the person you would expect. It's not the military person. It's, you know, you get a Mac and you inject a virus somehow in the, in the mothership system. Somehow. Somehow. Hand waving, um, you know, but but it's not always the solutions don't always come from the obvious places. And that what that's what makes a good movie. Right. But that's also what makes good teams is having diversity in thought and kind of in yourself. So if you're like an indie developer or whatever, exposing yourselves to different ways of thinking and different ways of doing things and different perspectives, it's not exactly the same. I'm not going to say it's the same as having someone with a different perspective on your team, but it's going to help you. Um, your paradigm is going to shift. The way you look at the world is going to shift. The way you think about problems is going to shift. And the way you solve problems within, say, the app you're creating or the website that you're creating is going to be completely different than if you had never explored things outside of what was easy to reach for. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, and and it it definitely... It's definitely obvious to me, um, like looking at it from the outside, especially when I was a tech journalist, when that kind of thinking wasn't there, um, when like a product was launched or some idea or whatever. And it's also really interesting how that sort of um, thing where people get into only, you know, taking the opinions of or, or only hiring or whatever people who come from the same or similar backgrounds. 
then also gets replicated in the world of like reporting on these things. So you've got people being like, this is the greatest product that has ever been. It's like, you only think that because you're like some white dude in his thirties who grew up middle class, who has drunk all of this terrible technology Kool-Aid. Like this doesn't actually work for people outside of you. But it was, you know, it was made by people who were like you. And so therefore, that's why you're reporting on it as if it's amazing. But it's really not amazing. Uh, Trust me. So I I have an example of this from, um, so an episode of Less Than or Equal I did with Lisa Schmeiser a while back. Um, Well, obviously a while back since it's been a while since Less Than or Equal was um, new and shiny. But she is a tech journalist and she goes to CES every year. And so she came on and we were talking about some of the tech that she saw at CES. And one of the things that she saw was like, I think it was like a a diaper monitoring system so that... um, so that caregivers could tell when the child had a wet diaper. And um, a lot of people scoff at this, but, you know, if you've got a caregiver who is disabled or, you know, chronically ill or whatever and has a hard time getting on a toddler's level to check a diaper or chase after a toddler when they're running around or, you know, maybe caretaker is an elderly relative or whatever, a tool like that can be really, really helpful for people. And so, like, don't poo-poo it. There's, there is definitely an audience for it. But the problem was you could have it on one device. So you could have the app connected to this, you know, internet of things, checking to see things tool, checking to see if a child's diaper was wet, but only one people could, one person could do it. So who is that one person? Is that one person mom? Uh-oh. It might be yeah. mom. Mm. Yep. And yep. the assumption is that only mom would even need that. Yep. Yep. And, you know, and things like that all the time are still coming out where it's like, okay, but who really is the audience for this? How did you come to that determination? If you're a bunch of guys in your 20s who was taking, you know, white guys taken care of by your mom your whole entire life, is that the assumption that you're making, right? Or is this coming from a tech company that um, that has disabled people on staff who are saying, oh, hey, you know, when I was raising my my child, I really could have used this because it's it was really hard for me to catch them with, you know, with my mobility problems or, you know, whatever. And so... Um, that's the thing that gets me is that there are so many tech things that have good, good implications and can help a lot of people. But because of the the perspective of the people creating it, they have such a narrow focus on how it's going to be used and what it's going to be that, you know, it never takes off, right? If you're marketing this just to moms, you know, it's not going to go very far. Right. Exactly. Because they haven't, they haven't thought through all the implications. That's so disappointing. But but Isn't why am that, I not surprised? Having covered no. many CES shows myself, um, that doesn't surprise me. One itty bitty, teeny tiny bit. Yeah, yeah. It's it, and and it's not surprising. Things like this are not surprising, and they should be. And hopefully, this is why. Um, you know, beyond just the having diversity in your teams is the right thing to do. It's really the business savvy thing to do because. You know, if they had a mom on there or if they had, again, a person with mobility impairments, they would have been able to say, hey, you know, (laughs) here's a use case for this. I'm not the only one changing diapers. What are we going to do here? You know, or even just a new parent. You know, these these were not new (laughs) parents. (laughs) Anyway, um, 
so, so yeah, tech, we still have a really, really long way to go. Really long way to go. That makes me sad in my sad place. I also think that a lot of times the the more interesting sort of ideas that I have seen come up recently out of tech do seem to come from people who are not necessarily, I don't want to say Silicon Valley types because there's more than one, but like not necessarily in the same kind of Silicon Valley mindset that a lot of the people who are creating startups that get the funding and whatnot. See, I can't, of course, I can't think of anything specific right now because my mind, my mind is a blank. But um, it's one of the things that I used to notice about those kinds of finds is that they would happen in the corners of CES where you don't have the big flashy booths. It was like these smaller booths, um, a lot of independent designers um, and and people who had just like banked all their money on trying to they they got enough money so they could go to CES so they could try to interest people in these products, but like they weren't necessarily the kind of things that were sort of being mainstreamed in any way um, because they were coming from outsiders. So yeah, I just, that's the thing I think that bothers me the most about tech development, software development is the lack of being able to draw on many different kinds of creative wells, um, many different kinds of ideas and experiences. Um, you know, because I mean, using the word diversity often makes people think of like, it has to be something about race, but you know, as Mm -hmm. the example that Aline was just giving, it's not even necessarily about race. It's about just having many different kinds of perspectives and, and also understanding that bringing in some kind of way out of the blue wild, whatever you want to say, perspective into your team, into your decision-making processes, even into the process of like showing somebody your product, your idea, whatever, and having them respond to it genuinely, that it, it offers so much insight. And I feel like the, that's where the really awesome creative things come from when they come out of tech, um, with the exception of things that are just terrible ideas, but still get a lot of money because dudes. Snapchat. Sorry. Dudes. I don't, (laughs) I mean, I don't pretend to understand Snapchat. I'm sure that there's, there's actually like reasons for Snapchat, but there are times when I'm just like, uh, why? It's one of those things where I feel like it's, I, (laughs) it's one of those things where I feel like I have an old and, um, I'm, you know, I'm very, very much no longer the target demographic for this, this app. And that, that's okay. The thing that boggles me is like the $1 billion valuations and and that kind of thing where it's, um, it's hard for me to see the value that it's providing, especially after, you know, news articles or, or, you know, blog posts or whatever written by fellow olds who are (laughs) not that old, who are, you know, this is how my sister uses Snapchat. I remember one where it was like, she doesn't even look at the pictures. It's all about, you know, like getting through and, and building up, you know, whatever their points system is. And, and that's how you do it, you know. And um, what? So, I, yeah. So, like, so, like, I don't, that's why I don't understand. I'm sure it's providing value to some people, but I, I don't know what that is. Um, and that's okay. That's okay. Um, in the tech industry, I was, uh, 
the iPhone 10 came out last week as we we're recording this and Apple did Apple's PR strategy was different from what it typically is. Um, welcome to tech talk with Elaine, um, where they actually gave kind of middle tier YouTubers access to the iPhone 10. Like they didn't get to take it home and review it, but they got to come in and record some video with it for, you know, some period of time, an hour or two, maybe, I don't know. And, um, so these mid tier, not even the, the prominent YouTubers, but these mid tier YouTubers, um, got access to the iPhone 10 before a lot of the kind of established old guard of tech journalists and people were upset. And I was upset not because of the YouTube thing, but because podcasters were not given access to the iPhone 10, um, early. And I listen to podcasts. I don't watch YouTube and I don't really read the tech blogs that, tear into the minutiae, but I do listen to tech podcasts where they talk about it. So I was kind of excited. You know, I'm always excited to hear other people's perspectives on new tech. Um, but people were really, really upset because it was YouTubers. Um, and they were really, really upset because Apple changed their PR strategy for this release. But it, I think it was really smart. Yes, I'm upset. I want podcasters to get it, but it's smart because, you know, tech people who are already going to buy the iPhone 10 are not the people they need to get excited about the iPhone 10. They need to get, you know, the youngins excited about the iPhone 10. Uh, you know, not me. I pre-ordered. I, stay up to, I stayed up until midnight and pre-ordered the iPhone 10 because I'm one of those people, right? So there's, there's this, I don't know, just because we don't understand a thing doesn't mean that it's bad and that it's wrong. It just means that we don't understand it. And again, this is why, um, you know, the PR team had to have, you know, someone with that idea. It wasn't like, this is how we always do PR. And so we are going to continue to do it this way. Someone was like, hey, what if we reached out to these YouTubers who have, you know, 30 or 50,000 subscribers or get 30 to 50,000 views on a video and have them come in and have them kind of help build some hype for it. And that's great. And the other thing that it did is it opened up, um, you know, because the old guard of tech journalists are white dudes uh, for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part. And so it opened up, there were, I think almost every review I watched was from a person of color. Um, there weren't as many women as I would have liked. That was kind of a problem for me, but you know, they're opening it up to more diverse perspectives by doing it like this too, um, which I think is awesome. Yeah, that is awesome. I mean, speaking as someone who worked at a magazine that probably had a bunch of people going, what, this isn't fair. Um, when that happened, I can say I would have probably been like, ha this is great. Um, cause I'm mean, but, <laughs> <laughs> but also because yeah, like there's, one of the reasons why I stopped doing technology journalism on a regular basis is because I was tired of writing the same thing over and over and over again. And I, I'm not even talking about like, I was tired of writing about technology. No, I was tired of writing the same review. This phone is new and it's better than the phone from last year and the phones that came out two weeks ago because it's newer and it has this many pixels and it has one extra pixel than the thing before it and that makes it better. And it has one extra camera and there's a terrible port in the wrong place. But <laughs> overall, it's the best new thing that ever was until the next new thing comes next out in two thing. weeks. Mm -hmm. Buy it. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's, there's no variation. So, so yes, I think like the energy of um, a bunch of people who are not sort of tied into that paradigm because as much as 
you know, each review that that you find will have a, some sort of individual spin on it. It goes by a template, um, and and not necessarily that's not necessarily the best way to review every phone. And so I think that that idea is pretty awesome. I I did not hear about any of this. I ignore all iPhone related news at all times, <gasps> but also mostly when iPhones come out, like. I didn't even know what the iPhone X was. I thought it was spam. I don't I don't know. Anyway. Well, Tempest, let me tell you about this phone I'm holding in my hand right now. No, no. It- <laughs> Run away. Okay. Run away. Oh, At any rate. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so turning from like technology uh to art, one of the reasons why um, I wanted to do this episode is because when I got to the the house where I'm doing my writer's residency here in uh, Idaho, in the bathroom, there were a bunch of copies of Bomb Magazine, B-O-M-B, Bomb. And I really love Bomb Magazine. I used to have a subscription a long, long time ago. I, you know, happened upon it on some newsstand. And Bomb is basically just a lot of covering different artists, um, from all the different artistic disciplines. Uh, it mostly consists of these amazing interviews where artists interview other artists. And it's often because like the, the people are really good friends or the person is just like a very, uh, devoted fan of the, of the artists that they're interviewing or something along those lines. Like these are people interviewing folks that like, they know something about more than just like your average interviewer. So, when I started reading Bomb and I started also reading some other magazines that were near on the shelf back in the day, one of the things that I was sort of surprised to find was how often the artists were talking about collaborating with people who were artists, but like not in their discipline. I don't even mean like, you know, there's an artist who only works in oils and she collaborated with an artist who only works in watercolors. No, I mean like, visual artists collaborating with musicians or even dancers, um, writers who were collaborating with people who make jewelry or, you know, something, something along the lines where it's like not necessarily the kinds of connections that you would expect from somebody working in the artistic discipline. And I thought about how it seemed like this was happening really often in the world of mainstream art. Um, But it wasn't, or I guess not even necessarily mainstream because some of these people were like working like in the subcultures of their various artistic disciplines. But how often it was happening, even with writers who were in the literary world, but that didn't really happen a lot as far as I could see in science fiction and fantasy. I mean, some notable exceptions include... S.J. Tucker and Catherine uh, Valenti, which we've talked about before, um, who, you know, you have uh, Suge doing um, a soundtrack for Cat's book, which is not something that was done that much when they started doing it. It's done more now. Um, So this... So I was like looking at these bomb magazines and remembering that and reading through some of the the articles in there and just thinking about how even even now I don't necessarily see a lot of that cross discipline or interdisciplinary um collaboration but when I do see it it does seem to produce like these really awesome works because you know you've got artists who are 
bringing in someone else who thinks completely differently than they do. Um, and whether they're collaborating on, um, you know, a two works of art that go together, a singular work of art that combines lots of different mediums, you know, whatever it is, they're producing something that's interesting and deep and very different than most of what you see. And I just am like, oh my goodness, why isn't there more of that? And I feel like this is a problem that has probably been tackled not probably, has been tackled sort of many times throughout like the ages of their being art. Um, But what I guess confuses me the most is that we live in a time where there is so much opportunity to be able to have contact with people who are very different from you stylistically, artistically, disciplinary-wise, um the, you know, where they're born, what experiences they have, whatever. And yet I don't know that I have witnessed an explosion of more of that kind of like interconnected art. I could also be missing it. <laughs> there, That is completely, it's completely possible that I just have not seen it because I haven't looked in the right places. So I definitely welcome anyone listening to this podcast who's like, oh no, I have 50 examples. Send me the 50 examples. Like tweet them at me uh, on Twitter. You could even send them to me, the email on my website, you know, whatever it is, because I am interested. I, I, I want to see, I, I want to see more of that in the world. And so wherever it's happening, I would love to know. Yeah, I would too, because I do think that it's rare, at least, um, well, I think the tech industry is, is an example of, of one, one place where that happens a lot, but you know, you're still talking about like digital, digital design or front end design, uh, versus like backend code or, you know, creating an app versus creating the assets, that kind of thing. Um, but there is that combination of art and, you know, code, which are two different creative pursuits. And don't you dare people tell me that coding isn't creative because there are many ways to tackle most problems and you've got to decide which one you um, are going to use. Like it's a, there's a lot of creative problem solving um, in tech. Um, but, you know, thinking about, you know, portrait artists and dancers, um, creating works of art together, you know, performance somehow. That's not a thing I hear about very often. So I think, um, yeah, I'd love to hear more about it because again, you're, you're influencing each other and playing off of each other. Um, that's why I love collaboration so much is like, I'll have an idea and, you know, I have good ideas, but um, they're always elevated. You know, when I'm with a client, working with a client, I'll be like, well, what if we, you know, take this kind of uh, content strategy, uh, strategy, hmm. <laughs> what if we take this route on things and they'll say, yeah, what if we do that? And we also blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, what if we take that and we twist it a little bit? And that's my favorite part about working with clients is that collaboration, that playing off of each other, because my experience and perspective as, you know, a writer, a content strategist, a marketing person, a, you know, a technical writer, all of that is different from their experience as a developer or designer or whatever that is. 
And so we make things better together. And that's what I really, really love about what I do. Yeah. It's, it's the best when you, you have somebody who can sort of drive you to new thinking. Um, and some of the ways in which I've seen this play out in, um, the genre that I call home, which is science fiction and fantasy, is um, the way that we'll see. Now I'm gonna the way that I'm gonna say it is gonna make a lot of people say no, that's terrible. But the way that literary fiction has influenced the way that we write science fiction and fantasy, um, I'm thinking specifically of there. There are a couple of people who like really went gung ho on it, and one of them, my favorite one of them, is Kelly Link, and. Kelly Link, when she first started, this is so interesting. Um, I, th- I think this story is called Travels with the Snow Queen. It's, okay. it's a sort of fairy tale uh, tweaking, um, not sort of, it is a fairy tale, re- fairy tale tweaking. And when she first wrote that story and she sent it around to a lot of different places, a bunch of magazines passed on it, not because it wasn't good, but because they just really didn't know what to do with it. They didn't understand it completely. They didn't know how it fit into the fantasy of the time. And this is like the 90s, the, the early to mid 90s, maybe. See, mm-hmm. I'm, I don't know my history. Anyway. So it was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. So what ended up happening was um, because she couldn't really place this story and because she had written something that was not quite the same, well, very not the same as a lot of fantasy that was being published at the time, her husband, Gavin Grant, well, I don't know if he was her husband then, but he's her husband now, Gavin Grant, who's also um, owns Small Beer Press with her, said, well, you know, why don't we have a little magazine. We'll call it Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. And Kelly's story was in uh, the first issue along with some other stories. And that story ended up winning a nebula. Okay. Right. Like, because it's an amazing story. Like, that's the thing. Like, all it really needed was somebody who was willing to put it out there so that everybody else could read it. Now, it's not even necessarily that Kelly Link wrote... Um, a fantasy story with literary fiction sensibilities because like, I feel like saying it that way sort of cheapens it, but it is clear that Kelly wasn't only inspired by and imbibing fiction from the science fiction and fantasy canon of the time. You know, she, she had pulled from a lot of different sources to create her own style. And a lot of people will complain that science fiction fantasy is becoming too literary, but the reasons why they complain about that are silly. Okay, they're not silly, but I disagree with them. So we'll Mm -hmm. leave it at that. But, you know, Kelly's story getting published, other writers who also had been sort of imbibing from many different sources and not just the science fiction and fantasy canon, writing things that were, you know, not quite had what was in vogue at the time or whatever, but found a home somewhere and then won awards and became very popular. I mean, that was, that was a result of, you know, stepping even just like a little bit outside, like outside of your particular genre into another genre or another few genres. Um, And that isn't even thinking about necessarily bringing in stuff from other artistic disciplines altogether. 
but it resulted in some really beautiful stuff. And now we do have a lot of science fiction and fantasy short stories, novellas, novels, whatnot, that are are very clearly in that same sensibility, in that same vein, or inspired by that sensibility and going a little bit further. And I think that it has it has brought some really excellent works to the genre. But again, this is not to say that the works that came before that were all terrible and bad. And why would anybody look at those? Because they weren't. And this also isn't even to say that like those works that came before that were didn't have some of the sensibilities of literary fiction because they did. But it was it was a particular thing that Kelly was doing. Um, other people brought along their particular things. They found a home, I think, in some cases, in part because of Kelly's publishing that story and having it win awards and people starting to recognize that there was, you know, there were different things going on. Um, so, you know, that's that's one tiny thing. Another thing that happened with me... Um, I, I belong, I, I guess I still belong, <laughs> I'm affiliated with a group called the Interstitial Arts Foundation, the IAF. And it was started by a lot of uh, writers who mainly hung out in science fiction and fantasy circles. Uh, Ellen Kushner, Delia Sherman, I think Terry Windling also was one of the founding members. Um, but, you know, a lot of these writers wrote things that weren't exactly science fiction and fantasy. They weren't exactly in any genre. And so they wanted to have a way to have a language for talking about the kind of things that they wrote that like fell in between genres. And so they started this, they eventually had uh, some anthologies that they put out. I was in one of the, I was in the first one. Um, They also had a literary magazine that they put out. But one of the things that I did with um, the IAF is I organized these auctions um, to benefit the anthologies so that they could pay the writers paying people it's a thing um it's where, a good thing yeah um and this was actually shortly after i started reading bomb magazine that i even came up with this with this idea was the first auction was i wanted people to create jewelry that was based on the stories um so that they could so yes, you'd have like this jewelry that went along with the person's favorite story. So we did that for the first auction. But then for the second auction, I just opened it up to any kind of art. And we had some like really extraordinary pieces of art and craft that were, you know, submitted for this auction. One of my favorites was um, by my friend, Emily Wagner. She created a skein of yarn by... she she created the yarn herself. Like she had the wool or whatever the, the raw material was. I believe it was wool um, that she had carded and she spun, but she had also taken the story that this was for and printed it out and cut it into like strips of paper, very skinny strips of paper and spun the bits of story into the yarn. So the yarn, right? So the yarn like, was this ball of yarn with like all these pieces of papers everywhere. And so she sold, she sold it as, or auctioned it as yarn. But she said, you know, you can knit something with this yarn, but as you knit, like the pieces of paper are going to start falling out. And that was part of it. Like that was, it went along with the theme of the story. Um, I believe it was a, a story about a character losing 
losing their words or losing their memories or something along those lines. I, it's been a very long time, so I, I can't remember what that story was about specifically. But, but I, I do remember this because I remember that it went along with the theme of the story so well, you know, this thing. Um, and, and how, you know, that is one of those things that could go on. Like, it, you know, whoever did buy that, that yarn, if they knitted something out of it, and then, of course, like the knitting of it makes the words like fall out, the wearing of it makes the words fall out. What does it turn into? Like there are all these things. And that's that's the kind of thing that I I loved about doing those auctions and working with the IAF was like being able to like watch people make those connections that they maybe would not ordinarily have made except for they were they were asked to. Mm-hmm. That is so neat. Well, and I think about things like um when I was in Chicago, not the last time, but the time before that, I went to the art museum and I really wish I could have gone last time too, because I could have wandered for hours. And what I really wanted to do was kind of like, you know, you see people in movies or if you go to art museums, you actually see them in art museums, like sketching um, or or painting or whatever, uh, recreating that work with their own spin on it, right? Um, but I wanted to sit down with a notebook and do writing exercises in front of them. And in fact, I kind of did that. I had a blog post that I wrote, um, the art Institute in Chicago has this, um, uh, wing kind of dedicated to religious art and I'm not a religious person, but they had this area, it was kind of quiet and they had a, a bench set up in front of this huge, it was what was the, um, like behind the altar of a church in Spain in the 1200s, um, like a noble's church. And it was like this just beautiful, beautiful painting. And, um, I sat there and wrote in front of that for like a couple of hours, just, you know, writing a tech blog post. Uh, but it was, it was awesome. And so what I really wanted to do was try to go, uh, in the middle of a day on hopefully a day where it wouldn't be too busy and take a notebook and just sit in front of a thing and write about it for a little bit with, you know, no in, intention or whatever, but just to figure it out. Um, it, it just, just to play around really. And, uh, so that's one of my, one of my Chicago goals is to have an entire day to go to Chicago, have an entire day alone at the art Institute where I can just sit down in front of paintings and write. Um, because it was, I was in such a different mental space there. And I noticed things that, you know, there are details when you're standing in front of a painting that you see that you don't see when you look at it in a book, you know, a photograph isn't going to convey all of the brush strokes and all of like the intricacies of, you know, the way the paint was laid down and all of that. Um, I, I don't know, technical arty terms, but like, (laughs) hopefully that conveys it, you know, and, you know, even just seeing things like, um, I grew up in the Southwest U.S. um, where, you know, Georgia O'Keeffe, I grew, I I lived for a while in a town very near where Georgia O'Keeffe lived for a lot of her life. And um, that was really amazing to to be in a room full of Georgia O'Keeffe paintings. That was really inspirational to be like, oh, she was not from where I was from, but she, um, she chose that place for a reason. And I recognize these hills. Like I know what the space looks like. And I don't know, it was just, it was very inspirational and, and awe-inspiring in a way to me. Um, so, I mean, that's, 
and I probably wouldn't have gone. Like I wanted to go, but I probably wouldn't have gone if my um, my friend Jean McDonald, who I was in town with, hadn't have been like, you know, we should go. Um, we should go. I want to go see Nighthawks. Um, it's my favorite painting. And so we went to see Nighthawks and then I ended up, you know, wandering around for a couple of hours. But I don't know. It's not something that I expected. And maybe if I'd gone a couple of years earlier, because I've gone to art museums, you know, but I, I never appreciated it the way that I did this time. And I don't know. It was pretty great. That sounds like something I would like to do. Just go sit in front of a, a painting for a day. Because I, I do that with um, the picture game, which is a thing that I started on Google Plus um, a few years ago because I I enjoyed doing that with friends earlier. And Basically, the picture game is just like uh, you get a picture. When we used to play it, when I used to play it with other people, somebody would choose the picture and they would give it to us and then we'd all write something. And you have 10 minutes and you just write something inspired by the picture, whether it's a description or a story or just whatever it is, like whatever you're moved to write. And you have 10 minutes and you just do it and then, you know, you would share it with people. Um, So, yeah, I I do that a lot with just pictures that I find on the internet. But... One of the things, like I, I remember, I was just thinking about this as you were talking, um, a Georgia O'Keeffe painting that I wrote a poem about because that was actually an exercise that my poetry teacher gave us is to like go to a museum and find a picture and write a poem about it. And I did that. And there's like another picture that I saw on the same excursion that I could never find a good recreation of um it was a picture of Noah's Ark and it's this like I don't even know who who painted it but it's this huge canvas and it shows like Noah's Ark like way off you know to one side of it and there's all this sea and there's all this darkness and it's like it's really so beautifully composed but when people take pictures of it they can't or at least the pictures that the museum was selling as postcards were terrible because they did not deal well with the balance of dark and light not so well as the painting does itself and so like if I I think I even still have the postcard around here somewhere if like you can maybe if you squint and look very hard see Noah's Ark in the dark corner that it's in on the postcard but it's that's not what it seems to be about unless you're looking for unless you know it's there um so yeah like I I definitely see a real value in like going and directly experiencing the art if you can, going and directly experiencing different forms of artistic expression. Like go out and see a dance performance. Go out and see a play. Go out and see the art that is in your, you know, your town. Because it doesn't even necessarily have to be museum art. One of my favorite things about the city of San Francisco is that there are all these murals in some of the places that are just, they're just there. And they, some of them change and a lot of them don't. And there's just like a huge, I guess, zeitgeist for, or community for keeping and preserving some of these murals. Um, There's one in the mission, which is near where I was staying, called Clarion Alley. And every time I go to San Francisco and I walk down Clarion Alley, I see things that I've seen before. There are some murals that seems to, everybody seems to agree those murals stay. And other mural spaces where everybody seems to agree that every now and then they're going to put up something new there. And so then I'll see the new thing. Um, And I try to record as much as possible because like once they're gone, they're gone. You know, they get painted Mm -hmm. over. But, But that's like... I also feel like that's part of the spirit of it, that 
you know, because it's street art. Um, a lot of it is very clearly done with spray paint. Um, and that's sort of the nature of of some street art to just like be ephemeral. Like once that's gone, it's gone. Um, and and that has, I think about that a lot when I think about art, the, the kind of art that has survived. Um, I mean, I've been inspired by watching belly dancers, um, watching, you know, as much as I've been inspired by watching ballet. Um, I love music in all its forms, but some of my best times of experiencing music have been like when I've come across drum circles in the park and I join the drum circle, um, or I just dance. I don't drum, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, making jewelry like accesses some of the same parts of my brain as making fiction does, but I can't tell the same story in jewelry as I can tell in fiction, but it's interesting to try. Um, so yeah, I, I have probably not sought out as many of these things as I should have over the years, taken as much advantage as I could have, but every time I have, it has resulted in something you know, amazing. It's always fed my creativity. And, and I feel like that is true for so many other people. Um, you know, you think about the, the times when you have an explosion of creativity, it's not just because people have enough time or have enough money to be giving to other people, uh, to do things like there's, there's always something else that comes with it. Um, I remember in Jonah Lehrer's book, I'm sorry to be mentioning Jonah Lehrer. I know the rest of you are like, oh my gosh, she mentioned Jonah Lehrer. That guy, he lied. He did things. I'm like, yeah, this, yeah, probably. Um, I don't know. I mean, he admitted it. (laughs) He wrote a book called Imagine, Imagination or Imagine. But anyway, he quoted something that Bob Dylan said in the book. And it turns out that Bob Dylan never actually said that. And then people started combing through the rest of his book and they discovered that he just made up a bunch of crap. It was like, oh, okay, Joe yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. But anyway, I, I remember the section in that book. Um, the, I, I read it before the controversy. Like, I read it when it first came out. And the section in the book where he was talking about Shakespeare and how Shakespeare added, like, all these new words to the English language, which he did. And he talked about one of the reasons for that was because Shakespeare was actually exposed to a lot more language. But so everybody in that time, if they were in the cities, was exposed to a lot more language than they had been before because of just what was going on with the times, greater trade, um, you know, more... There was a whole lot of stuff going on and, yes, a bunch of wars, but, like, there was just... There was there was a fecundity, I guess you could say, in London at that time that made it possible for that. And if it wasn't going to be Shakespeare, it was going to be somebody else. Like, it was... There was all this stuff swirling around. Shakespeare was the genius that, you know, happens to be the one that we know about today. Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe. Can't forget Marlowe. Never forget Marlowe. Um, but anyway, so, so, yeah, it wasn't, you know, just that Shakespeare was a genius because there are a lot of geniuses. Um, I mean, in the whole history of the human race, there probably been a lot of geniuses, but you know, mm-hmm. you put a genius in a place where they have access to more, where they are open to more, then their genius has a, a whole new way to flower. Um, and then hopefully it lasts. So yeah, I would say, I mean, if we're going to talk about the roots of creative genius, I think that one of the roots of creative genius is being able to not just synthesize all the things that you know about your art, um, your discipline, your particular corner of your art and discipline, but 
to be able to access in some way some small part of other artistic disciplines that can then sort of feed you. Yeah. Yep. And you have to be open to it. If you're closed to experiencing that, um, you know, you're just like anything else, you're not going to, right? We have a very, very strong ability to um, cloister ourselves, I guess, cloister our opinions and our paradigms and our, you know, our perspective on things. Um, And so, you know, you've got to be open. You've got to be open to having different experiences and kind of, I guess, picking them apart, maybe analyzing them and and figuring out how, or even just playing with your experience of them to see how you can integrate it into other things that you do and create. Yep. And this, by the way, also is something that is really needed in a lot of academic disciplines. Yep. Um, I was just writing about this on my blog because um, a few years ago, a bunch of people sent me this article that came out. And the article was like, scientists figure out how Egyptians built the pyramids, which is not actually what the scientists figured out. Like how they move those big stones, but what the paper was actually about is from some physicists. And the physicists were like, moving very large and heavy objects across the sand is easier if the sand is wet, which I don't know. I kind of felt like that was... Obvious, but whatever. Mm-hmm. So, but they they proved Redu- it. You need know, to reduce friction. Yeah, like, but they proved like exactly how much water you would need, and if you had too much water, then the thing wouldn't slide. But da, da, da. I was like, okay, fine. So yeah, if you want to move something like giant and heavy through some sand, that sand better be wet um, in order for you to be able to move it with any kind of efficiency. Cool. But then, in the interviews that the scientists who wrote this paper gave. They, one of them said something like, well, we have this picture that came from the wall of a tomb of uh, a very large statue, like a huge granite statue of a pharaoh being pulled. And in the picture, it shows like lots of, lots of men, you know, pulling this um, pharaoh um, or pharaoh statue. And in the picture, like they, the statue is like on a sled, which they assume is like a wooden sled. And in on the sled in front of the statue, there's a guy pouring a liquid in front of the statue. Now, the physicists said that Egyptologists have always assumed that the pouring of this liquid was some sort of purification ritual. They never thought to seek a scientific explanation for this picture or what the guy doing in this picture. And I was like, and at the time when I read that, I was like, Egyptologist, because quite honestly, that is a thing that happens like in anthropology and archaeology. Oh, it has a ritual purpose when you don't like that's almost code for I don't know what it is or what it's for. It has a ritual purpose. So it wasn't exactly implausible that that could have been the case. Just put it that way. However... Um, last month I was on a research trip, as I believe I've mentioned on this show before, and I was reading through a lot of old books, uh, on Egyptology. And I came across a picture, a recreation of that picture 
of the many men pulling the pharaoh several times. And each time I came across that picture, underneath it, it said, giant statue of a pharaoh being pulled while man pours water or other liquid. One person I think said it was milk. Well, while man pours water in front of it to reduce the friction. And I was mm-hmm. like, now what? What? I thought that Egyptologists thought that it was a purification ritual. So either the older Egyptologists correctly deduce the point of the pouring of the water, which to me seems obvious, but again, I don't know, maybe to other people it didn't seem obvious, but, and the older Egyptologists deduce correctly what this guy was doing. And then newer Egyptologists, for some reason, were like, nah, man, that's a ritual. And thus, you know, silliness. Or the physicist lied and said that Egyptologists thought it was ritual. Or he misunderstood what somebody said to him about the thing. He wasn't actually aware of the the things that the general Egyptology community had said about this picture. You know, whatever. But like, it it really went to show how, first of all, a lot more people need to be involved in the study of ancient artifacts than just people who have decided to study ancient artifacts. You know, like we could use the insight and opinions of physicists who aren't being jerks and lying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We could use the insight and opinion of geologists. We could use the insight and opinion of um, engineers, you know, and, but right now it feels like, um, academic disciplines are all really, really, really specialized and siloed. And so any sort of like coming together of all these different people from all these different disciplines feels really impossible. And to make it worse, sometimes when they do come together, um, then there's a fight. Mm-hmm. Like one of my favorite things is, uh, well, favorite quote is that, um, there's a guy who's, uh, trained as a geologist uh, and many years ago, he made a study of the Great Sphinx of Egypt, the one in front of the pyramids. And he was like, so this um, erosion on the Sphinx is indicative of erosion that only comes from rainfall. And so that means that this Sphinx has to be way, way, way older than Egyptologists think it is. Because if it was carved, when Egyptologists say it was carved, it was carved during the time when this area was a desert. That area was not always a desert. Many thousands of years before um, the dates we have for dynastic Egypt, that area was actually um, more rainforesty, or at least foresty, and there was like rain on a consistent basis. And Egyptologists hate this dude. <laughs> like they just, they hate him. They have all these reasons for not listening to him. They have other geologists who are like, nah, kind of. Um, but like, instead of taking that information and being like, well, let's, let's see if we need to reexamine our own paradigms. They're just like, no. Um, and I, I see that I've seen that story, that kind of story repeated across many different academic disciplines that I've seen. And that seems to be, the way to not to, to stagnate really. That's what it yep. seems to me. I would, I think so too. Yeah. It's don't sad. stagnate artists. Don't, don't stagnate. Don't be like those Egyptologists who don't listen to the guy about the Sphinx. 
I think that there's academia really rewards pride and being right. It doesn't as much reward what we think it's there for, right? Like we think of it as being, you know, breakthrough discoveries and whatever, but um, we hear a lot more about the breakthrough discoveries and not so much the walking back of theories where it's like, well, uh, we thought it was this way, but actually our, you know, our, 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 our hypothesis was completely wrong or whatever. We never, well, not never, but we very, very rarely hear that. And I think that it's really detrimental, but grant money, you know, it doesn't go to the people who are like, oh yeah, we're wrong a lot. It goes to the people who are like, right. <laughs> yeah, we're really gonna disrupt, you know, <laughs> to go back to tech, we're really going to disrupt this area of academia or, you know, new scientific breakthroughs or, you know, whatever. And so it's, it's a problem. It really is a problem. Yeah. But I think that, you know, one of, one of the great things about being an artist is that even though there is a little bit of that thinking within many different, you know, artistic disciplines, you know, as I said, there are people who are like Kelly Link, you know, that's, you know, more literariness in our fiction our science fiction, no, we need more robots and men, whatever, um, or whatever their objections are. But like, you know, those people, they they have like a very loud voice. And, you know, sometimes artists wonder like, well, should I be listening to them or should I be following this like in, more interesting thing that I want to do? I think the best stories that have come out of people saying, I'm just going to follow this interesting thing I'm going to do. But, and I'm sure that like, that's true in lots of different artistic disciplines. There's always somebody who's like, no, you can't do that. You're messing with the paradigm. Yeah. That's, that's a bummer. It, I mean, it doesn't do anybody any good. And I say as a reader, I am much less inclined to read those, you know, I don't know the classic science fiction, you know, I'd much rather pick up, um, (laughs) N.K. Jemisin. I'd much rather pick up a book by, I'm reading, um, gosh, I can't think of the series right now. Um, I'm reading, uh, Victoria Schwab's, uh, series, uh, A Darker Shade of Magic, I think, or maybe that's just the first book. Um, but I'm reading that right now and that's not at all, you know, like old school science fiction fantasy, and it's much more interesting as a result. Yep. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, and when Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, people were probably upset about that too, because that just wasn't the type of book you wrote. But, you know, look at what it created. Yep. I mean, yeah. Lots of people, they're just like, what, what is all this thing? And I don't even want to think about what people had to say about Samuel Delaney back in the day. I mean, Mm -hmm. they probably still have it to say about Samuel Delaney now, but man's a genius. So yeah. Or I'll tell you Octavia Butler. I mean, some of her stuff is even, you know, written in not super long ago. It's kind of weird and it's good. Like it's really good, but it's weird. Yeah. I, I actually just got finished reading, parable of the sower and the thing that kind of surprised me at the end of that book was that it didn't end with and then they accomplished all of their goals and went into the stars like like I actually was really surprised when I looked down it was like you have 87% of this book left or you know you've been through 87% of this book and I'm like what it but 
They haven't <laughs> even started yet. with the spaceships yet. Um, and and no, because like that that isn't the type of story that it was. And I was like, oh, this is so interesting. Like I've been chewing on that um, for the last few days. I just finished it a, a couple of days ago. Just thinking about how that isn't the type of storytelling that one is led to expect from science fiction of that era. And that's great, actually. That's pretty awesome. Um, it's one of the reasons why she was a genius as well. Unappreciated. Well, I appreciate her. <laughs> Underappreciated by the larger masses. Evil masses. Evil masses. All right. Well, I think that's about it. Tempest, do you have anything else you wanted to bring up? Well, I do want to say this. I'm I'm issuing another challenge. Are we Ooh. ready? Because we're like, we're always issuing challenges around we are. here. Like we can tell you what to do. I challenge you. Um, so I I want you, whatever your artistic leanings are, I want you to actively seek out uh, works of art in other disciplines that you would never like naturally gravitate to. Um either because they're just a little bit out of the mainstream, they're not necessarily on a topic that you would read about or or look at, you know, art about or whatever, um, but actively do that and then just like see what that does to your perspective on your own art um, and and let us know, like tweet at us about it. Uh, if it doesn't fit into a tweet, you can write a blog post and then tweet us the blog post. But, you know, I just, I would be really interested not only in seeing like the kind of things that you choose to go look at, but then your reaction to the things that you saw. And it doesn't necessarily even have to be a positive reaction because maybe you do it and you're like, I looked at um, some performance art where monkeys were playing banjos and it was horrible. And I now I never want to leave my house again. I mean... That could be your experience, but I, I have a feeling that also you will have some experiences that are, are way more interesting and um, are creatively inspiring than monkeys with banjos. And I don't know. I, don't, I think that's pretty you, interesting. If you all tell me you found a monkey banjo show and it was amazing, I want to hear about it. <laughs> I do. I agree. And while you're tweeting at us, because um, we are... Recording this on Monday, November 6th, and the episode goes up on Thursday, November 9th. So not quite halfway, well, I guess just a little bit into November, a third of the way through November. Um, let us know if you're doing NaNoWriMo and how that's going, or if you're doing some other sort of challenge and how that's going. Um, you can find us on Twitter. The show is at Originality FM. I am at Aline. Tempest is at Tiny Tempest. And you can get in touch with us that way. Or like Tempest said, write a blog and then tweet at us. Um, and then, you know, we'll see it. We'll let you know. Until next time, uh, go challenge yourself, she commanded. Do it. Do it.